Chapter 8 of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter 8 The King and the Little Dove. A savage murmur ran through the marketplace of Bergen one summer morning in the year 1507 as Chancellor Valkendorf made his pompous way along the avenues of stalls, laden with their country produce, his passage followed by scowling eyes and low-spoken maledictions. There could not have been a more unwelcome visitor than this cold-eyed, supercilious Chancellor, unless it were his master, Christian, the Danish prince who had come to rule Norway with the iron hand and to stamp out the fires of rebellion against the alien rule that were always smoldering, when not leaping into flame. Bergen itself had been the scene of the latest revolt against oppressive and unjust taxes, and the insolent Valkendorf, who was now taking his morning stroll in the marketplace, was fresh from suppressing it with a rough hand, which had left many a smart and longing for vengeance behind it. But the Chancellor could afford to smile at such evidences of unpopularity. He knew that he was the most hated man in Norway, after his master, but he had executed his mission well and was ready to do it again. And thus it was with an air, half amused, half contemptuous, that he made his progress this July morning, among the booths and stalls of the market, with eyes scornfully blind to frowns, but very wide open for any pretty face he might chance to see. He had not strolled far before his eyes were arrested by as strangely contrasted a picture as any he had ever seen. Behind one of the stalls, heaped high with luscious, many-colored fruits and mountains of vegetables, were two women, each so remarkable in her different way, that almost involuntarily he stood rooted to the spot, gazing open-eyed at them. The elder of the two was of gigantic stature, towering head and shoulders over her companion, with harsh masculine face, massive jaw, coarse protruding lips, and black eyes which were fixed on him in a magnetic stare, defiant and scornful. For none knew better than she who the stranger was, and few hated him more. But it was not to this grim, hard-visaged Amazon that Valkendorf's eyes were drawn, compelling as were her stature and her basilisk stare. They quickly turned from her, with a motion of contempt, to feast on the vision by her side, that of a girl on the threshold of young womanhood, and of a beauty that dazzled the eyes of the old voluptuary. How had she come there and in such company, this ravishing girl on whom nature had lavished the last touch of virginal loveliness, this maiden with her figure of such supple grace, the proud little oval face with its complexion of cream and roses, the dainty head from which twin plaits of golden hair fell almost to her knees, and the eyes blue as violets, now veiled demurely, now opening wide to reveal their glories, enhanced by a look of appeal, almost of fear. The Chancellor, who was the last man to pass by a flower so seductively beautiful, approached the stall, undaunted by the forbidding eyes of the giantess, Frau Siegbrit by name, and, after making a small purchase, sought to draw her into amiable conversation. No, she said, in answer to his inquiries, we're not Norwegian. We come from Holland, my daughter and I, and we are trying to earn a little money before returning there. But why do you ask? she demanded almost fiercely putting a protecting arm around the girl, as if she would shield her from an enemy. You are in such a different world from ours. Little by little, however, the grim face began to relax under the adroit flatteries and courtly deference of the Chancellor. 
for none knew better than he the arts of charming when he pleased and it was not long before the amazon completely thawed was confiding to him the most intimate details of her history and her hopes yes my daughter is beautiful she said with a look of pride at the girl which transfigured her face many a great man has told me so dukes princes and lords she is as fair a flower that has ever grew in holland and she is as sweet as she is fair she is devika my little dove the pride of my heart my soul my life she is to be a queen one day it has been revealed to me in my dreams but when the day dawns it will be the saddest in my life and with further amiable words and a final courtly salute valkendorf continued his stroll secretly promising himself a further acquaintance with the dragon and her little dove this was the first of many morning strolls in the bergen market in which the chancellor spent delightful moments at frau sigbrit's stall each leaving him more and more a slave to her daughter's charms for he quickly found that to her physical perfections were allied a low sweet voice every note of which was musical as that of a nightingale a quiet dignity and refinement as far removed from her station as her simple print frock with the bunch of roses nestling in the white purity of her bosom and a sprightliness of wit which even her modesty could not always repress thus it was when valkendorf at last returned to upsala and the court of his master christian his tongue was full of the praises of the market beauty of bergen whose charms he pictured so glowingly that the prince's heart became as inflamed by a sympathetic passion as his mind by curiosity to see such a siren i shall not rest he said to his chancellor until i have seen your little dove with my own eyes and who knows he added with a laugh perhaps i shall steal her from you it was in vain that valkendorf now alarmed by his indiscretion began to pour cold water on the flames he had lit christian had quite lost his susceptible heart to the rustic and unknown beauty and vowed that he could not rest until he had seen her with his own eyes and within a month he was riding into bergen with valkendorf by his side at the head of a brilliant retinue as the prince made his way through the crowded avenues of the bergen streets to an accompaniment of scowls punctuated by feeble forced cheers he cut a goodly enough figure to win many an admiring if reluctant glance from bright eyes with his broad shoulders his erect well-knit figure clothed in purple velvet his stern swarthy face crowned by a white plumed hat christian looked every inch a prince today too he was in his most amiable mood with a smile ready to leap to his lips and many a gracious wave of the hand and sweep of plumed hat to acknowledge the grudged salutes of his subjects he could be charming enough when he pleased and this was a day of high good humor for his mind was full of the pleasures that awaited him even frau siegbrit's scowl was chased away when his eyes were drawn to her towering figure and with a swift smile he singled her out for the honor of a special salute when the prince at last arrived in the market square he was greeted by a procession of the prettiest maidens in bergen who in white frocks and with flower-wreathed hair advanced to pay him the homage of demure eyes but among them all the loveliest girls of the city christian saw but one a girl younger than almost any other but so radiantly lovely that his eyes fixed themselves on her as if entranced until her cheeks flamed a vivid crimson under the ardor of his gaze no need to point her out he whispered delightedly to valkendorf i see your little dove and she is all you have told me and more before many hours had passed a court official appeared at frau siegbrit's cottage door with a command from the prince to her and her daughter to attend a state ball the following evening 
If the poor market woman had had a crown laid at her feet, her surprise and consternation could scarcely have been greater. But she would make a bigger sacrifice of inclination than this for the little dove who filled her heart, and who, she remembered, was destined to be a queen. And decking her in all the finery her modest purse could command, and with a taste of which few would have suspected she was capable, the market stall-keeper stalked majestically through the avenue of gorgeous flunkies, her little princess with downcast eyes following demurely in her wake. All the fairest women of Bergen were gathered at this ball, the host of which was their coming king. But it was to the fruit-seller's daughter that all eyes were turned, in homage to such a rare combination of beauty, grace, and modesty. Many a fair lip, it is true, curled in mockery, recognizing in the bell of the ball the low-born girl of the marketplace. But it was the mockery of jealousy, the scornful tribute to a loveliness greater than their own. As for Prince Christian, he had no eyes for any but the little dove, who outshone all her rivals as the sun pales the stars. It was the maid of the market whom he led out for the first dance, and throughout the long night he rarely left her side, whirling round the room with her, his arm close clasped round her slender waist, not seeing or indifferent to the glances of envy and hate that followed them, or, during the intervals, drinking in her beauty as he poured sweet flatteries into her ears. As for Divica, she was radiantly happy at finding herself thus transported into the favor of a prince and the queendom of fair women, for whose envy she cared as little as for the danger in which she stood. If anything had remained to complete Christian's infatuation, this intoxicating night of the ball supplied it. The little dove had found a secure nesting place in his heart. She must be his at any cost. She and her mother alone, of all the guests, were invited to spend the rest of the night at the castle as the prince's guests, and when he parted from her the following day, it was with vows on his part of undying love and fidelity, and a promise on hers to come to him at Uppsala as soon as a suitable home could be found for her. Thus easily was the dove caught in the toils of one of the most amorous princes of Europe, but it must be said for her that her heart went with the surrender of her freedom, for the prince, with his ardent passion, his strength and his magnetism, had swept her as quickly off her feet as she had made a quick conquest of him. Thus, before many weeks had passed, we find Divica installed with her mother in a sumptuous home in the outskirts of Uppsala, queening it in the prince's court, and every day forging new fetters to bind him to her. And while Divica thus ruled over Christian's heart, her strong-minded mother soon established a similar empire over his mind. With the clever, masterful brain of a man, the Amazon of the marketplace developed such a capacity for intrigue, such a grasp of statesmanship, and such arts of diplomacy that Christian, strong man as he thought himself, soon became little more than a puppet in her hands, taking her counsel and deferring to her judgment in preference to those of his ministers. The fruit-seller thus found herself virtual prime minister, while her daughter reigned an uncrowned queen. When the prince was summoned to Copenhagen by his father's failing health, Frau Siegbrit and her daughter accompanied him, one in her way as indispensable as the other. And when King James died and Christian reigned in his stead, the women of the Bergen market were installed in a splendid suite of apartments in his palace. So hopeless was his subjection to both that his subjects, with an indifferent shrug of their shoulders, accepted them as inevitable. For a time, it is true, their supremacy was in danger. Now that Christian was king, 
it became important to provide him with a queen, and a suitable consort was found for him in the Austrian princess Isabella, sister of the Emperor Charles V, a well-gilded bride, distinguished alike for her beauty and her piety. Isabella, however, was one of the last women to tolerate any rivalry in her husband's affection, and before the marriage contract was sealed, she had received a solemn pledge from Christian's envoys that his relations with the pretty flower girl should cease. But even Christian's word of honor was seldom allowed to bar the way to his pleasure, and within a few weeks of Isabella's bridal entry into Copenhagen, Divica and her mother resumed their places at his court, to his queen's unconcealed disgust and displeasure. More than this, he established them in a fine house near his palace gates, and when he was not dallying there with Divica, he was to be found by her side at the castle of Vilor, of which he had made her chatelaine. The remonstrances of Valkendorf and his other ministers were made to deaf ears. His wife's reproaches and tears were as futile as the strongly worded protestations of his royal relatives. Pleadings, arguments, and threats were alike powerless to break the spell Divica and her mother had cast over him. But Divica's day of empire was now drawing to a tragic close. One day, after eating some cherries from the palace gardens, she was seized with a violent pain. All the skill of the court doctors could do as little to assuage her agony as to save her life, and within a few hours she died, clasped to the breast of her distracted lover. Such was Christian's distress that for a time his reason trembled in the balance. He vowed that he would not be separated from her, even by death. He threatened to put an end to his own life, since it had been reft of all that made it worth living. And when cooler moments came, he swore a terrible vengeance against those who had robbed him of his beloved. She had been poisoned beyond a doubt, but who had done the dastardly deed? The finger of suspicion pointed to the steward of his household, Tobirn Oxa, who it was said had been among the most ardent of Divica's admirers, and had had the audacity to aspire to her hand. It was even rumored that he had had more intimate relations with her. Such were the stories and suspicions that passed from mouth to mouth in Christian's clouded court before Divica's beautiful body was cold, and such were the tales which Hans Faborg, the king's treasurer, poured into his master's ears. Hans Faborg little dreamt that when he was thus trying to bring about the downfall of his rival, he was sealing his own fate. Christian lent an eager ear to the stories of his steward's iniquities, but when he found there was no shred of proof to support them, his anger and disappointment vented themselves on the informer. He had long suspected Faborg of irregularities in his purse-holding, and in these suspicions found a weapon to use against him. Faborg was arrested. An examination of his ledgers showed that for years he had been waxing rich at his master's expense, and he had to pay with his life the penalty of his fraud and his unproved testimony. But Faborg, though thus removed from his path, was by no means done with. Rumors began to be circulated that a strange light appeared every night above the dead man's head as he swung on the gallows. The city was full of superstitious awe and of whisperings that heaven was thus bearing witness to the treasurer's innocence. And even the king himself, when he too saw the unearthly light forming a halo round his victim's head, was filled with remorse and fear to such an extent that he had Faubourg's body cut down and honored with a state funeral. He was still, however, as far as ever from solving the mystery of Divica's death, and the longer his desire for vengeance was baffled, the more clamorous it became. 
although nothing could be proved against Torbjörn Oxa, Christian was by no means satisfied of his innocence, and he decided to discover by guile the secret which all other means had failed to reveal. He would, if possible, make his steward his own betrayer. One day, at a court banquet, he turned in jocular mood to the minister and said, Tell me now, my dear Torbjörn, was there really any truth in what Faborg told me of your relations with my beautiful lady? Don't hesitate to tell the truth, which only you know, for I assure you no harm shall come to you from it. Thus thrown off his guard and reassured, the steward, who, like his master, had probably drunk not wisely, confessed that he had loved Divica, and had asked her to be his wife. But sire, he added, that was the extent of my offense. I was never intimate with her. During the remainder of the banquet, Christian was most affable to the indiscreet steward, not only showing no trace of resentment, but treating him with marked friendliness. The following day, however, Torbjorn was flung into prison, and charged not only with his confession, but with the murder of the woman he had so vainly loved. And, in spite of the storm of indignation that swept over Denmark, the pleadings of the papal legate, Archimbaldo, and the tears of the queen, was sentenced to death for a crime of which there was no scrap of evidence to point to his guilt. This gross act of injustice proved to be the beginning of Christian's downfall. His cruelties and oppressions had long made him odious to his subjects. And the climax came when a popular uprising hurled him from his throne and drove him an exile to Holland. An attempt to recover his crown ended in speedy disaster, and his last years were spent, in company with his favorite dwarf, in a cell of the Holstein castle of Sondeborg. As for Siegbreit, the woman who had played such a conspicuous and baleful part in Christian's life, she deserted her benefactor at the first sign of his coming ruin, and ended her days in her native Holland, bemoaning to the last the loss of her little dove, whom she had seen raised almost to a throne and had lost so tragically. End of chapter 8. Recording by Colleen McMahon.